Thanks to the internet, everyone has a platform. To even be noticed by a celebrity, you used to have to join a fan club. And then maybe they would sign a poster for you, someone else would shove it in an envelope, and then send it to you. But now we have Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, blah, 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 and anyone can say anything, anywhere. Some people will go viral with 300 followers and get more attention from the unknowns than they will ever get again. But how many calories should you really burn on the comment section? As a young reporter, I was taught, don't read the comments. They're often rude and rarely constructively critical. But every now and then, there is a comment that makes you stop scrolling. And when that comment claims to know where two missing people are, you pay attention. I'm Samantha Cortese, a journalist at KTLA. I was born and raised in the Coachella Valley. I worked there as a journalist, developing sources for half a decade. And now I'm in Los Angeles. In this podcast, we're going to look at what we know about what happened to Jonathan and Audrey. You're going to follow me on this journey of finding out what happened to them. And everything we discuss is according to Riverside County Sheriff's Department, Indio Police Department, local news reports, unless otherwise noted. This is California Crime, The Disappearance of Jonathan and Audrey, Episode 2. Thanks for listening. Let's get started. In February 2020, before the earth went to hell in a handbasket, Facebook released data in its quarterly report on its user profiles. Facebook estimates 11% of its profiles are duplicates of active users, so that's about 275 million fake profiles. The proportion of false, misclassified, and undesirable accounts is said to be 5%. That's about 137 million user profiles. And that's just Facebook. I run a group for my show on KTLA, KTLA 5 Live weekdays on ktla.com live. Check it out if you feel so inclined. The group has more than 10,000 followers. And to join, you have to answer questions to prove you're not a robot, you have to agree to the rules, and prove you actually watch the show. Even with a three-step process, sometimes the trolls cross the bridge. So when you post about a story like an attractive missing couple, you are bound to get comments. On the evening of May 10th, 2017, Jonathan Reynoso and Audrey Moran went missing. They had been missing for about a month when KESQ, the local ABC affiliate in Palm Springs, posted a story about the ongoing search. KESQ's website has changed since then, but the comment section for stories used to be like most every local news site in the country. Anyone can leave a comment with little to no traceability. The fields would ask for a name and an email, an email that would go unverified, by the way, and your comment. On June 25th, 2017, within one hour of the story going live on the KESQ website, someone who used the name Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, typical male spelling of the name, commented. In all caps, Aaron wrote, I know exactly where both are, exclamation point. And in lowercase, next line, patience is a virtue. Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, Aaron, that name, those words, people immediately began screenshotting the comment and sharing it on social media, and police became aware of it, saying it's being investigated. But why? Aaron is the name of Audrey's ex-boyfriend. We still don't know if Aaron actually left that comment. 
if someone did just to get Aaron on the police radar, or if it was your run-of-the-mill attention seeker. But no matter the intention, it got plenty of attention. And by this time, it's been reported in local media that Audrey and Jonathan were not dating exclusively. And any good true crime fan will know, look at the ex. I don't know much about Aaron personally. His Facebook has been wiped clean for years. People who were at Coachella Valley High School with them tell me he and Audrey dated many years ago when they were sophomores and juniors in high school. Everyone, not just police, put microscopes on Aaron's every move surrounding the night of and the nights following May 10th, 2017. On May 22nd, 2017, 12 days after Audrey and Jonathan were last seen, records that track police reports and calls, commonly referred to as police blotters, recorded a report of a stolen vehicle in Coachella. If you remember from episode one, Coachella is a city in the eastern Coachella Valley. That's where investigators say Jonathan and Audrey's cell phones last pinged or showed any connection to a cell tower. Here's why that's important. The police blotter recorded someone with the address tied to Aaron Bernal make that call. Whoever made that call reported a car being vandalized and stolen. One day after the car was reported stolen, it was found burned in a field in thermal, what police call an act of arson. Someone reported the car stolen, and a day later, it's torched in a rural part of the desert. That's suspicious to anyone paying attention, and investigators certainly were. A former colleague of mine was one of the only media to interview investigators one-on-one about this case, and did so before they stopped granting interviews altogether. John White, a veteran journalist with KESQ, ABC Palm Springs, directly asked the Riverside County District Attorney and the county investigator about this connection between Audrey, the house in Coachella, and the torched car. John did some groundwork to find out as much as possible about Aaron Bernal, the ex-boyfriend, but he also uncovered some documents that revealed a little more about Jonathan. Here's my interview with my former colleague, John White. Well, thank you for having me. And yeah, this has just been an incredible case for us here in the Coachella Valley. So much attention. Uh, Two young people who really were very much loved by people in both of their circles that, that, that had just come together, you know, not long before they disappeared. So you are a very unique source for this podcast because you've been, uh, you know, boots on the ground trying to investigate what happened to Jonathan and Audrey. So let's start with Aaron. Now, when you speak with law enforcement, they are not saying his name. He is not listed as a person of interest. But what were you asking, alluding to Aaron Bernal? Well, what we found out very early on, and this is somebody who was a friend of Audrey Moran, and uh, he was living in Coachella at the time. And within weeks, uh, sheriff's investigators are at his home uh, where he was living in Coachella, and they're serving a search warrant. And according to neighbors, taking out quite a few things. But of course, that warrant was sealed. So we don't know what they were looking for. But we do know that he was not seen at that house and hasn't been seen at that house since the search warrant. 
when we started uh, uh, going to that home and trying to uh, talk to neighbors, uh, he had moved out a short time after all of this and uh, was possibly living with his family in Indio after that. And uh, at that time, when I was there, they there were painters there and they were kind of rehabilitating the home for, for whoever was going to live there next. Interesting. So that search warrant was sealed, but you got your hands on two other search warrants and even though they did not name Jonathan and Audrey, it seems that common sense would point to this case. Why is that? Well, what happened, in, and, and they uh, disappeared on May 10th, 2017. Monday, uh, May 22nd, 17, uh, Aaron Bernal calls the Sheriff's Department and reports that his uh, 2015 white Dodge Charger has been vandalized. That's on the 22nd of May. Hmm. Just hours after that, he contacts the sheriff's department after they do the initial report about the vandalism and reports that same car as stolen. Hmm. Then one day later, May 23rd, that car goes up in flames in a dirt field, uh, uh, in that uh, area, Tyler Street uh, Avenue 50, east of Highway 86 in the Coachella. So really not far from where he was living at the time. And that raises a lot of questions. You're someone who is fr you know, friends with Audrey Moran, and now there's this multiple reports, first vandalism, then a stolen vehicle, and then the same car goes up in flames, uh, really just within uh, uh, 10, 15 days of when this all happened. No doubt that is suspicious. Anybody who was following that case at the time immediately started commenting about that on social media or talking in the town. I spoke with a woman who said she was at a smoke shop and that was the topic of conversation. But when you spoke with investigators, they did not name him a person of interest. That's true. But this search warrant, uh, goes into great det detail on what they might be looking for. And it says uh, firearms, shell casings, projectiles, firearm paraphernalia, evidence that may be located inside the vehicle, a collection of gun paraphernalia and or ammunition uh, would provide evidence needed for forensic uh, analysis in the attempt to locate a possible suspect through biological evidence such as DNA, blood, fingerprints, and other bodily uh, secretions. The search warrant goes on to explain, and it never mentions the missing couple case or Audrey Moran or Jonathan Reynoso, but it goes on to explain that often uh, stolen vehicles that end up being burned in an arson fire are vehicles that had been used in other crimes. So it's a detailed search warrant, and it also was for the vehicle, but also the home where that vehicle was registered to, which was a residence in Indio, uh, which is where we believe his family was living. At his parents' house or his family's home. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing they never answered the door to speak with you. So we went there and they did not uh, answer the door. Don't know if they were home, uh, but we left a card. And then I, I believe I also mailed them a card and said, boy, we sure would like to talk with Aaron because we know he was friends with Audrey and, you know, surely uh, he might want to clear up any 
confusion or things being said on social media or whatever the case may be uh, that we never had a response. Right. And as far as I know, they have not spoken with any media at all at any point, not just KESQ. To my knowledge, that's correct. You looked into Aaron and when you sat down with investigators, did they name any persons of interest? Nothing. I mean, it's been a very, um, you know, we've talked to uh, both the sheriff's investigators. I talked with DA Mike Hestron very early on about this. And, you know, what little we know about this is that this investigation probably involved a number of agencies. Uh, The DA's office, as they would be in a, uh, you know, fairly early on, uh, they handed this investigation off to homicide investigators, even though they weren't calling it a homicide at that time. Uh, But this involved uh, probably multiple agencies, probably on uh, multiple levels, uh, federal, state, and local authorities. Right. And I get that impression as well, because, I mean, we knew Indio Police started with it. It was handed off to Riverside County Sheriff's Department. Uh, DA Mike Hestron has made it very clear that he thinks this case is solvable. Um, but when I would email, you know, people, sources that I knew in the department, they'd say, yeah, let's sit down, let's talk about it. And then I imagined down the chain of command, they were told, you better not talk to media about this case. Mm -hmm. So, um, have you found that they've been particularly tight lipped about Jonathan and Audrey's case, uh, after your interview? I would say very tight lipped and, and, um, you know, we, of course we won't know exactly, uh, why that is until the case is solved and we get some details about potential motives and that. We just started looking into Jonathan and Audrey. Who are they? Uh, Aaron mm-hmm. was one of the friends uh, of Audrey that, uh, and by the way, neighbors down at uh, Aaron's place in Coachella said that they had seen Audrey at the house, that, uh, you know, there were kids hanging out there quite a bit. Uh, and nothing terrible going on. They didn't have big complaints about uh, Aaron as a neighbor. They said there was often the odor of pot being smoked in the backyard coming over the fence. Other than that, uh, there were no complaints. They just thought that they were, you know, kids hanging out. But you said you looked into Audrey and Jonathan. Audrey's parents have been a little more quiet after the initial news stories about their disappearance. Jonathan's mom posts regularly to Facebook sharing her grief and says it's a way for her to cope with her son being missing. But I did notice a shift after your reporting looking into Jonathan because some of the stuff you found was perhaps not so favorable Can you tell us what you found out about Jonathan prior to the disappearance? And I want to make it clear that everyone loved both of these young people. Uh, Audrey Moran was very much, uh, uh, we couldn't talk on the record with anybody at her workplace, a storage facility in Bermuda Dunes. uh, But off the record, everyone who worked there said she was a model employee uh, taking extra shifts, never missed a day. She was terrific. And she had a, a, a large network of friends, it seems. Jonathan, we talked to his friends. They loved this guy. He seemed like a, just a happy-go-lucky, gregarious guy. At the same time, we found out, and, and it doesn't say anything about why this happened or whatever, except to say, if someone is missing, I think you would want to find out what was going on in their life. 
And one of the things that was going on in Jonathan's is he may have been having money problems and he was about ready to be evicted from his apartment. Did you find documents from the regent, the apartment complex? Some people said he had a roommate at times, a female roommate. How did you find out that he was basically delinquent on his rent? Yeah, I never talked to the roommate, but uh, uh, we had been told this by friends and I was able to uh, essentially get, uh, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, the landlord's pressuring me and whatnot. And then it's another to say that there's been paperwork filed with the sheriff's department and they're about ready to show up and actually remove you. And so he was in the eviction process uh, on that apartment at the region. And I don't know if you've heard anything about this, but um, no cell phone with service. It was only on Wi-Fi, didn't have a car, didn't have a job. Did you find anything out about that? Some of his friends uh, told us about that, that, that he did not have cell service, that it was, uh, you know, he essentially communicated on Wi-Fi through uh, text or, or email and when he was in service, but so that he would not have been able to communicate when he was out on the road. There was discussion at first that uh, Jonathan had had some reason to go to Brawley that day and that Audrey was going to pick him up in Brawley. And it just doesn't seem like there's really any evidence or a timeline that backs that up. But again, you know, we, we don't know for sure. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that has racked my brain while looking into this case because of the pizza box that was at Jonathan's apartment and that time it would take for Audrey to get to her sister's house in Coachella, then to Jonathan's in Palm Desert to pick him up or to go to Brawley, then back to Palm Desert. None of that Brawley timeline makes sense to me. And it sounds like you agree with that. It, it doesn't. And then also his friend um, had told me, um, that again, Jonathan needed to be on Wi-Fi, according to what they uh, told me, um, to be communicating, and that they were communicating around nine o'clock that night, uh, and uh, they were joking about. Uh, I gotta find my notes right here, but they were joking about the rapper Bow Wow, and, and I must say that I'm not familiar with Bow Wow. But at uh, 9.05, uh, the night of May 10th, his friend told me that they were joking about memes about the rapper Bow Wow, and Jonathan texted back. And it was somewhat ominous, you know, knowing that this is the last time he spoke with him. And it was, in a funny sense, I'm dying right now. Right, like I'm laughing so hard. Oh my gosh, yes. I'm dying. Uh, That's hilarious. Yeah, basically, LOL, I'm dying right now. And... That was at 9.05. So according to his friend, that would mean that Jonathan would have been somewhere on Wi-Fi at that time. So it just doesn't make sense uh, where this trip to Brawley fit in. Uh, and, and we've and talked about on the podcast that is Imperial Valley. It's like an hour away from Coachella without traffic, yeah. hour and a half from Palm Desert. I just don't see how that fit in. And right now, as far as I know, the only person who's mentioned that trip to Brawley was Audrey's sister. That's what Audrey told her sister she was doing. And Audrey had worked, I believe, that night until uh, early evening. Uh, she, I think she had closed at the storage facility. So um, I'm, I'm just not sure that uh, it, it, it's just hard for me to work out a quick run to Brawley in, in this timeline. But that doesn't mean it didn't happen. 
Uh, one of the things that we've been trying to find out is what OnStar could reveal, uh, mm. because it was a GMC vehicle and uh, it had OnStar on it. I contacted the OnStar people, and of course, you know, they're not going to reveal to the media what's going on, but they may be able to uh, provide authorities in a case like this with some valuable information about recent trips that that vehicle made because OnStar is kind of a, you know, uh, if you have OnStar, you can, you know, call for help or whatever. So that OnStar computer on board the GMC SUV may be able to uh, provide in law enforcement with some information about where that car had been. These are all things that you and I have looked into or have called about. And we're trying to, we're not trying to solve the case by any means, but we're trying to understand it. And we have to assume that law enforcement has also already called and got this information. But because they're not talking to the media, it's it just leaves so much of a gap for the public to fill in. And that leads to rumors and names being thrown around. But it's hard when police really haven't told us what they do or don't know or have looked into, which is why I wanted to talk to you about your interview with uh, District Attorney Mike Hestrin. What was the sense of the case? I, it was for a one-year anniversary story, and I, obviously it's been a while since that interview, but what was the feeling you got from him discussing this case? Well, again, just like the investigators, uh, unable to say very much, except to say that they were going to be playing that support role every step of the way. When there was a need for a search warrant or whatever, the DA's office was involved in the efforts, it would seem, uh, from very early on. And what we know is that there had been, you know, we were able to, because many of the warrants are sealed, uh, we were able to uh, get copies of these search warrants that involved the vehicle. But there are probably dozens and dozens of other search warrants mm -hmm. that we mm -hmm. don't know about uh, because it's a sensitive investigation. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that anybody is hiding anything. It just means that. And I think what you said about we're just trying to understand this case and just to go more into what we reported on about Jonathan's perhaps having money problems. That's all we're trying to do is understand what was going on in his life. What may have indicated that, you know, he would want to leave or that, you know, that he was having a problem or that anyone would have a problem with him. You know, we're just trying to understand what was going on in these two people's lives because we know that an act of this, uh, like this is, is only very rarely, um, you know, uh, random. And so right. that's what we're trying to do is understand it. And as you know, I grew up in the desert. Uh, so many people know so many people. Uh, one of our former colleagues, Laura Yanez, you know, knew these people from high school who then mm -hmm. I found out I knew people who were in that circle because I, you know, knew a football player who knew Jonathan. And it's just it's such a small desert it's really surprising that three years have gone by without somebody either getting drunk and saying it to somebody else or 
somebody spilling the beans to a close friend who then decided to go to police. It really is just shocking to me that we have gone three years without somebody spilling what happened to them. If any, if they didn't run away, assuming they didn't just, you know, go fall in love and elope and never talk to their family again. And what makes it even more of a mystery is here's Audrey holding down this job and doing very well. Uh, everyone loves her there. She's showing up to work every day. Jonathan's had some struggles, some money problems. I don't know anyone in their 20s who hasn't. Uh, but these are not people with long criminal records. There's no background that we know of that would point to anything nefarious going on in their lives. So uh, there's just these two very likable people. And then, you know, this happens. And, and so, again, we're just trying to understand. The media has all been kind of in the same boat here with this case because of how little we know. Anything that you can say or speak to about how the desert has either supported the family or reacted to this case? I would just say this about this couple, that the Coachella Valley has been extremely supportive of the families and there have been so many efforts and I think thoughts and prayers are with them. When we do a story, a follow-up or anything on this, we get so much feedback and uh, they just remain top of mind. And until we get answers, I think that it'll remain that way, that Audrey and Jonathan will be thought of uh, often here in the Coachella Valley. John mentioned talking to OnStar about Audrey's car. And just to recap, we know investigators found Audrey's gray GMC terrain using OnStar on May 12th, a little more than 24 hours after the couple was last seen. It was alongside Interstate 10 in Beaumont. Bloodhounds picked up a scent near that car. Now retired Indio Police Department Sergeant Dan Marshall told KESQ no forced entry on the vehicle, no signs of forced entry in the vehicle, no blood or anything like that, end quote. Private investigator Luis Bolaños is not involved in the case, but he looked into it with his own team. And he said a bloodhound tracked the missing couple's scent for 50 feet, which could be indicative of them getting into a different car. Next time on California Crime, the disappearance of Jonathan and Audrey. Riverside County Sheriff's Department has one of the best bloodhound units in the nation. They're phenomenal. I spoke with Investigator Bolaños and the K-9 team to learn about the case. And when someone vanishes without a trace, there are some good boys who beg to differ. Next time on California Crime. This has been episode two of California Crime, The Disappearance of Jonathan and Audrey, a KTLA podcast production. Hosted and produced by me, Samantha Cortese. Special thanks to producer Bobby Gonzalez and Olson Ebright for the green light to tell this story. If you know anything about Jonathan and Audrey's disappearance, please call the designated hotline. That is 760-393-3544. You can choose to remain anonymous. 